Hello and welcome to the Better Questions podcast. So grateful you are tuning in today. I am here with a good friend, former colleague, former pastor at Eastminster, currently pastor at Ridgepoint Church, Joe Skillen. How are you today? I'm doing all right, man. How about you? Doing pretty good. Joe is gracious to give us some time today. He was just on another podcast. Uh, this guy is a podcast journeyman and uh, for good reason. He's one of the smartest people I know. And uh, I had a bunch of questions come in that are questions on some kind of strange and maybe a little bit confusing New Testament stories. Um, and I thought no better person to help explore these questions than Joe Skillen. So um, again, thanks for being here. And uh, I think we should just dive in. Sounds good, man. All right. Um, so again, Joe, you're a little familiar with the podcast. The purpose is to wrestle with hard questions and seek to ask better ones. So that's what we're going to attempt to do here. These are these are worth wrestling with. So the first question is this. Why does the daughter of Herodias ask for the head of John the Baptist? Okay. Yeah, I mean, that. okay, so that's a great question. Um, I, so I think there's something going on in the story and why it's located where it is, mm -hmm. um, in the gospels. Um, and I think we said back to like, what, what are the new Testament books doing? What are they seeking to do? Right. Obviously, um, the gospels are a persuasive tool. It's trying to move people from here to there, um, in provocative ways, but as you know, I mean, Matt, you were like a lit major at Sterling College, so you know sure. that stories stories are like a slow burn, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, and I think that there is a bit of a slow burn going on, uh, and this story helps in some way. Um, I I tend to go to Mark's Gospel first. Um, th that's not like some secret in the guild. <laughs> it's just I I don't know. I was told Mark was probably written first and then the you know Matthew and Luke probably have Mark at their disposal when they're putting their gospels together. So in Mark chapter 6, uh, we get the story of the beheading of John the Baptist. So he's arrested and we get the detail that he's arrested because he's meddling in Herod's business. Mm. And um and so there's a sense where like throwing him in jail should be good enough like he can't be out in the streets. Um you know, creating all the baby mama drama uh, with King Herod. And so they're at a party and the party gets out of control. It kind of has an echo of the book of Esther mm. in the Old Testament where here you are, like there's like leaders with a lot of authority and then they have parties and then they end up doing stuff that potentially torpedoes their reign and their reputation. And so same thing's going on here. Herod is... Um, I think he's had a lot of liquid courage, uh, as <laughs> as the the youngsters might say, and um, he's pleased by the dancing of this girl, and he vows to like give up to half of his of everything he has, right? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And she gets coached, um, and the terms are for the head of John the Baptist. So, I mean, there's a lot going on here. I think she's doing the bidding of her mom. Um, because this is kind of a cover up, uh, for maybe some, something's going on in the background, uh, but everybody knows about, yeah. um, what I find interesting is that the very next, so what Matt, sorry, Mark does with it is the very next passage. 
is um, Jesus feeding the 5,000, right? Mm. So what you have side by side with one another is like, this is what Herod's party looks like. Right. And in contrast, this is what the real king of Israel, this is what his party looks like. So if you had a choice between option A or option B, um, which one would you choose? So I think that there's something going on here. I do think that the question that was submitted is a great question. My first response is, I think she's just like she's being um, told by her mom to do something that benefits the family, right? Yeah. And so here you have people looking out for themselves in one story, and then you have Jesus feeding the multitudes of people, the nameless, faceless crowd, being selfless. Yeah. You know, in contrast to it. So I think there's something going on here. So a gospel is to, per- is to persuade. If there's any people in the crowd of Mark's gospel who think, ah, maybe Herod's not such a bad guy, uh, Mark's saying, I think you got to rethink that conclusion about Herod, yeah. and here's a reason why. So that's just my little stab in the dark. I think it's, that's good. Um what I guess my I'm asking questions because I don't I don't really know the answer. Like right. what is because it says that Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. Um why why does he want what's so mean about this guy? I mean, we get very little outside of early on in the gospels about John the Baptist. Why do they hate this guy? He seems kind of like a cool dude, just hanging out and growing out his hair, wearing sackcloths. Like what what's what's wrong with John the Baptist? Well, he's holding up a standard. So um, Mark 6.17, it said, for, for Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. So mm. Herod's cutting in on his brother's marriage. Interesting. And um, So there's like power, yeah. there's lust, probably money, all three of the biggies. Right. Kind of- <laughs> yeah. Honestly, yeah, um, and coming together here. So, yeah. Yeah. And my reading between the lines, it sounds like uh, Herodias is just hot and bothered because this young girl's dancing provocatively. We don't, I mean, it doesn't really say that explicitly, but there's, yeah. there's a reason why he's just like ready to do whatever, whatever her bidding is. Yes. Um, fascinating. It is. And, um, so is there a more like, so this is written to a first century audience. We're like a 21st century world. Yeah. So, so what is maybe the import for us? Um, I th- I just would say like, and this is not to be like a grouchy preacher, yeah. but um, there are still leaders like this yeah. who would like for us to line up behind them. And um, we have the same chance to escape uh, their influence over our lives. Yeah, that the first century, the same appeal. Like we can follow King Jesus yeah. instead, right? Um, one of the things that our buddy Don Miller, who's a fan of Better Questions, by the way, I heard it. Like he told me yesterday, it, yeah. Know, he said, "Hey, <laughs> what Matt's got, got going on there is great." Uh, I mean, Miller said that if you're gonna, if you're trying to sell something, or if you're trying to persuade somebody, like you got to give them a way out. Like you got to mm-hmm. give them a place of escape to, to yeah, you can provide too, right? Build a bridge. And, that's escape. right. Build the bridge. Good. And so here's Mark um, bringing a good message. And he's like, you got to leave. And when you leave where you're at, you're not going to be left out in the cold. Like you can find mm-hmm. space at this table where 
multitudes and multitudes of people have more than enough and you can find that uniquely in the true king of israel so yeah all right so i'm gonna i'm gonna pivot on you here good yesterday i had our mutual friend uh rob ramsire on the pod and i actually asked him a question related to what you just espoused on that um it was a question sent in uh at one of our deep dives uh there's a deep dives and uh, didn't get answered so i brought it up to him and it was how do you um, lead or how, how do you how do you go about being underneath a leader who is very unchristian was the term? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you sort of live in that space? And we first Rob and I talked a little bit about, unfortunately, um, you know, I was I've been reading Chuck DeGroats when narcissism comes to church. Okay, and he 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 brings up some statistics on how prone pastors are to becoming narcissists, and and the kind of begs the question: are are those people attracted to the role of pastor in the first place, oh, or yeah. is it is it the position itself that inevitably can lead? Because he Degert talks all about how narcissism is a spectrum, mm-hmm. um, and it it can get worse, but it can also get better. Like you can recognize it and repent and heal and. Anyway, all that to say, regardless of whether they are uh, decidedly, you know, Christian, unchristian, but just poor character, potentially abusive in whatever way, how does one work in that environment or, or be underneath someone like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, um, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. I think we have the book of Daniel as a model. Now, Mm -hmm. Daniel is a spectacular story. I mean, uh, things falling in place, uh, Daniel able to overcome impossible odds. I mean, that. so that might be the ideal, but there's something about the way that Daniel worked, um, the integrity of his character, I think the wholesomeness of the way that he lived, Mm. uh, which even made like a narcissist like Nebuchadnezzar and others want him around. Right. And because they knew that he wasn't going to be one person in front of them and another one behind him. And mm-hmm. um, I think that that that's probably a key fixture. Um, and just also knowing like, I mean, Daniel, too, says that God installs leaders and removes right. them. Right. And so also like carrying not just the way of Daniel, but also the idea of Daniel, which is mm-hmm. um, I can be myself as long as I do anything that crosses um my goals for my character, things that I would feel is out of yeah. bounds for any of us. If I can hold on to my character, if I can hold on to who I am yeah, and then just wait for this thing to work itself out. Right. Um, but I think along the way, what I would do is like when I've seen transformation from somebody who's, you know, this kind of thinking of themselves and then, then becoming more whole, it tends to be they get a person of vulnerability in their life or an mm. issue of vulnerability. And it tends to be revolve around kids or profound need. So mm. a person who is locked up in their own ambition, when they get a, a, a child or a grandchild in their life, all of a sudden like priorities get re-rendered. Or yeah. if they get a an issue, like a profound issue like, I don't know, childhood cancer or dyslexia or like getting them uh, aware of a story where they, um, somebody needs to help these people or else like that seems to be the first step to get them out of like leveraging stuff for them now leveraging stuff for somebody else. And cause that initial, that initial step, it's like a middle step is mm-hmm. 
I want to be their hero. So it's still narcissistic. Like it's not altruistic yet, but um, at least it gets them in the gravity of wanting to help somebody else and away from just the complete self-absorbed, self-serving. Yeah. I think my other uh, word to the the person asking the question is like, I do think even for certain leaders who have a lean towards narcissism or whatever, they can also be really compelling people and people who are charismatic, exciting, and it can be really easy to sort of fall into um, the wreckage of these types of leaders if you're not careful. And so one of my words is also like, there is a time to serve under a leader, uh, maybe for a season who is not the greatest human and has character flaws, but there's also a time to like jump ship. Yeah. Be like, you know what? I don't need to, I don't need to put myself in a position where it's making me compromise my own ethics and character, um, for the sake of following this person whom many people don't see the inner workings. Like I, I use a pastor, for example, people see someone on the stage preaching every week. They have a persona on the stage and then you meet them in person and their persona is nothing like the person you saw on the stage. I remember meeting someone, um, it was actually a conference and I looked up to this speaker, thought they were amazing, went up to give the person a compliment and was just totally like wrecked because of how just rude and yeah. <laughs> he didn't want nothing to do with me. I was like, wow, like that was not the person I thought they were. And it was like just a one interaction, right? I don't want to judge the guy's whole life, but it was definitely like, um, I think that's the danger of of being in a position when someone can have that type of pull and charisma and then uh, privately they're very different. Yep. Sometimes when you're you're in the leadership team or you're in the inner circle, you see both sides of that and that can be uh exhausting. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the options of bailing, I think if it's justifiable, it's fine. Um because you've got a I don't know. You have to save yeah. your own soul. Like, and yeah. I mean, it's, I use that like tongue in cheek, right? Like you've yeah. got to say, I can't, what this is doing to me, what, what this is turning me into is not something I, I like. And then like just trying to be faithful, uh, just trying to figure out a way to help uh, the scenario. I think what the Bible does say, like this is kind of leaning on some of the Ecclesiastes stuff, which is if you, you know, the person who digs a pit will fall into it. Right. Mm. I think what I've just found through anecdote and even just my own, personal experiences like daydreaming of like you helping this person's demise um there, there seems to be no wisdom in it mm. um and i think we see that and even nietzsche our good friend nietzsche he would say be careful when you chase monsters because you might just turn into one right and but- um we've got to avoid kind of the vigilante um the vigilante I don't know, impulse that we might have yeah. and because we've been hurt. So now we got to hurt somebody back. Mm. Um, cause that it's alluring because you feel like you're getting some yeah. sort of justice in it. And it just, it just doesn't seem to yield, um, what we think it's going to. That's good. Yeah. That's good. Well, yeah, I'm still chewing on that. <laughs> the Nietzsche quote. That's, uh, that's got me thinking. All right. Are you, <laughs> okay. I'm like shook over here. Okay. I listened to uh, the second question. We're going to transition and I might re- circle back to that as I ponder it a little bit. Um, the second question is uh, another 
uh, we, we referenced it briefly, but like another interesting parable in the New Testament. Um, right. The question is this, and it was actually a question that came from a previous podcast I did with our mutual friend, Paul Brandis. Um, we talked about heaven and hell and, and just sort of some questions surrounding that. And the question was this, submitted by Sarah. I listened to your episode on hell and was wondering if the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is an actual description of hell. Hmm. Can people in hell talk to people in heaven? Yeah, okay. Um, so I think a couple things with this. Um, there's a lot of chatter behind this parable in particular because um, it does, for people who would like to articulate what the afterlife could look like, they tend to go to this parable um, and they try to, like even our good friend Tim Keller and mm -hmm. I think John Erberg, like they see, see this not as a parable, but as something else because they say Jesus actually gives a name to a character in the story unlike mm. the ways that he uses parables in other, um, right. on other occasions. Um, it is only in Luke, so we got to keep that in mind. Okay. Um, we can't now compare this and what's going on in Matthew and Mark. How does how do they use this parable? And so right. it's situated in Luke alone. So I kind of go to Luke as a whole and I say, okay, what's Luke trying to do? And uh, what's Luke's world like uh, before we try to diagnose how the story is being used? And so how can we have a license to use it? Hmm. You know, so this is just my stab in the dark. Yeah. So this this parable is situated in kind of like a story within a story in Luke. So Luke's got this thing called the travel narrative. So at the very end of Luke 9, all the way to the end of Luke 19, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Um, and it seems like Luke slows down the narrative for a reason, much like a movie where years can pass in a second, but then a conversation takes three minutes of the movie. We, we're, we're trained. Like we just know, okay, like something important is happening here. Um, and so we do believe that Jesus is kind of ping-ponging over the border back and forth from Samaria to northern Galilee and Judea. He seems to be preparing his disciples for future ministry in unfamiliar places. Um, his uh, preaching and teaching on discipleship and prayer picks up in these, um, in these passages, what to do with money, how to deal with conflict, um, all these things. Um, this is the first time where Jesus uses a parable in a church context. Uh, he talks about like uh, the tax collector going up to pray. I mean, it's located here. Mm -hmm. So obviously like some unusual things, I guess I would say this, like if an evangelical wants to use this as a depiction of hell, they're going to have an issue to deal with because yeah. as this parable rolls out, um, Lazarus, whose name means the one whom God helps. That's what Lazarus means. Okay. Mm -hmm. He doesn't get into a place of rest, Abraham's side by a faith confession. Right. The rationale provided is Lazarus suffered in life and now he's being comforted. And rich man, you had great things in life and now you're in a place of torment. Right. Um, but rich man did kind of land where he landed because of something he either did or he left undone. And so we have that to figure out. Um, along the way here, I was, uh, and this is just uh, I was something to con consider. There is a genre that we've actually picked up in American or English literature called uh, the tour 
uh, genre of literature or tour stories where someone is given a tour of the afterlife or like a, a different place. And it's a shocking experience in order to have them think about how they're going to live life now um, in their lived experience. So we think of like a Christmas Carol by Dickens, right? Mm. Where Scrooge is, a, he's got his eyes opened to certain things, which causes a transformation within the moment. And so um, there is a sense, some, you know, maybe a few scholars out there would say, Jesus' agenda here is not to um, sketch out the finer contours of post-mortem experience mm. as much as it is like this is a tour narrative for our lived experience. And right. the only reason I would say that is because this this parable kind of ends abruptly. Mm-hmm. It ends with rich man asking uh, Abraham to see if Lazarus can go back and serve him some more by telling his brothers what will come to them if they don't change their ways? And Abraham says, no, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. And rich man says, no, they won't listen to those. And then Abraham says, well, then they wouldn't listen to someone who's raised from the dead. Right. And then like the curtain drops. Yeah. What's interesting is at the very end of Luke's gospel, uh, post resurrection, Jesus appears to a couple of disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he uses Moses and the prophets to open up their eyes to how scripture story was leading to mm. these events. Remember, they're in a place of like, they're wandering right. away from Jerusalem. They're in a place of bewilderment, asking questions. Their eyes are open, and then they return to Jerusalem. It's like they they go back to where they need to be um, through Moses and the prophets. So early in the gospel, we were told, hey, like, I guess Moses and the prophets are not helpful, but then at the end of the gospel, because of the light of Jesus shining upon the scripture, um, those scriptures are not able to guide and direct and to bring people uh, to abundant life. And so, um, yeah, I I think I would say there's something else going on only because like the whole salvation formula is not really sketched out here. Um, Right. Moses is sorry, not Moses, <laughs> um, rich man's in torment because of stuff he did, but like explicitly because he experienced great things in life. I mean, yeah. it's, what is, I think our ticket more is like, it's a great reversal upon death. Right. Um, and one little note, it's kind of interesting. If you go to Genesis 15, uh, Abraham, or I think still Abram at this time is wrestling with how his inheritance will endure. Cause he has no kids yet. According to the promise God gave him. So he's been waiting and, you know, obviously working towards uh, establishing a family that will bless the nations according to the promise of God. It hadn't happened yet. So in Genesis 15, Abram's like, you know, I guess Eliezer, my my helper, is going to be the one who carries the promise. I, I bumped into a scholar one day who said, if you transliterate Eliezer from the Hebrew of Genesis to the Greek of the New Testament, it's rather close to this Lazarus character. So ah, I think we're it's a little bit of a callback yeah. to just like when we are wondering how is God's promise going to endure? Like yeah. how how what is going to be the answer? It seems like we're in a bind here. It seems like this thing is running out. Um mm. God says, not so fast. Like I've got another card to play, and the resurrection uh changes everything. So those yeah. are just a couple things those that are I would, good. Uh, stab at. So I think it's interesting in the story that even 
at, in this parable of being quote unquote hell, um, uh, who's the character? The rich man who doesn't, who's unnamed, right. um, still sees himself as above Lazarus. It's yeah. like he can't, he can't, even in this space, he's like, he, he's like, send Lazarus down here to you, give me water. Yeah. It's like, it's very much this, like, you still don't get it, bro. Like here, you're the one who, uh, is, is who chose this in a sense. Like we, that was one of the interesting parts of our conversation about hell is often, often this idea of like, when you choose to live in a, in a way that, that hurts people and oppresses people and, um, live for yourself. And in essence, you're choosing to live in a life that's outside of God's vision for us, yeah. which in a way is a choice. Mm -hmm. um, and it just seems like even, even then he's still choosing to see Lazarus as a dog or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that's something that Keller in his chapter on hell and the reason for God uh, talks about. And he leverages a lot of C.S. Lewis. Yeah. I mean, C.S. Lewis suggested that hell, if hell has a lock on the door, it's on the inside. Right. Not on the outside. Um, I think there's a, a, I think there's an assumption that whenever we get into far beyond, we, you know, judgment seat, like a big transformation is going to happen. Like, and there's going to be like deep regret in our hearts. And if this is some sort of a window into post-mortem experience, um, I think what C.S. Lewis says is actually the hell that we experience and that we create on earth is writ small in a place like hell. It's just going to be writ large. Like there are two people, Lewis says that God says like people who say to God, your will be done. And then those whom God says to them, no, you can, your will be done. Like if you want separation from me, you'll get it in spades, bro. Like mm. it, it'll, I'll give you all you want. And so, um, yeah, I think if uh, this parable has anything to do with that, that's probably the element that I would take. Also, like I was reading a commentary over this passage once and the word for torment is an interesting word. And obviously like he is, uh, uh, he's hot here. Like he wants yeah, water. Yeah. So there is like some sort of a fire, a burning. Um, this word for torment, there is a related word in the Greek for a sharp stone that money changers would use to scratch the surface of coins. To see if they were real or if they were counterfeit. If the coin had a veneer of precious metal, but it was like fake gold underneath or whatever, or if it was real. It's kind of like back in the day, the kids won't know this, but like they used to put highlighters on 20s. Do you remember that when you'd pay yeah. for 20 at like C-Mart and Sterling, right? C-Mart. Like <laughs> that was never actually called C-Mart, but we all called it C-Mart. I think it was C-Mart once back in the day. It was. Great memories was. there, man. That's right. But this bosanos stone, it's what like the word bosanos um is a name for the stone. So um yes, he's there's some sort of like physical burning. I think there's also another layer here, something that could preach is that in a place that rich man was, like mm -hmm. it's like he's being exposed again and again that he didn't really have a depth. Like he had yeah. and I mean that moment of the getting caught in a lie or being caught that you're not performing well at work and you can't run. There's like nothing to justify it. Like that yeah. burning mm. and that feeling that like very, like a very alone feeling like that's what this guy's experiencing. 
And um, I think if, if that might be a great expectation of hell is that it, we're just, we're left to this sinking feeling that we really did miss it. Yeah. That's dark. <laughs> it's heavy. That's, but that's, you're right. It's, that's dark. <laughs> made me feel things. Um, I think torment is what Green Bay Packers fans felt when they played the Vikings early on the season. You and, bet. Uh, that's uh i love i love being on top of that the uh nfc north just it feels good feels good it's a reversal it sounds and it sounds like for me yeah it sounds like if you get to play us in london you're gonna win again and then i'll i'll bring you just a dab of water while you're suffering (laughs) oh man you guys really missed Devontae adams let me tell you that guy was lighting us up or lighting the Chiefs up. I was watching the Chiefs game the other day. He is something else. And now he's in hot water. He is. He hey, that guy, poor, poor cameraman. <laughs> poor cameraman. <laughs> wrong place, wrong time. Um okay, awesome, awesome stuff there. Yeah, that's that was rich. Let let me uh do one last pivot. And I okay. I'm this is one that was submitted I think yesterday, and I'm like, hey, it kind of goes along with this. All right. Um, and I'm putting you on the spot. I gave you no time to prep for this. So here we go. Joe, off the cuff. Okay. What did Peter mean when he said Jesus made proclamations to the imprisoned spirits? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So um, I so that passage in, um, <coughs> is it 2 Peter? It's, yeah, 1 Peter or 2 Peter. Hold on. Let me. I mean, there is no third Peter that we know of. It didn't Correct. make the cut. So um, even, Peter even says some, the, some strange things sometimes. He does. Um, um, so from what I recall, um, that so I think if you had 20 different commentaries, mm-hmm. you might get 10 different ideas. Yeah. That's not that good of a joke. If you had 20 commentaries, you'd have 25 different ideas about right. um about what's going on here. So what I, I guess what I, so how is Jesus? So this gets to Christology. Mm-hmm. Um, it gets to like a covenant reading of scripture. So what I like about it the most, and you know, the EPC crowd that is uh, listening in is going to love yeah. this, that this, this challenges dispensationalism. So dispensationalism says, you know, God spoke um, in containers, right? He had this container, then it, that containers put away. And then a brand new terms, you know, over throughout the ages. So Peter here is, is being a good um, first century, second temple Jew by saying, no, God's one story. God's righteousness is revealed. God's commitment to God's one story all the way to the end. So how is Jesus present in the days of Noah? And how is he pe- uh, preaching to spirits in prison? So I think there's a lot of things going on here. I it's it's really unclear in this passage. What what is who is doing the preaching? So I'll just say this: the Holy Spirit is also mentioned yeah. in this tight passage. So there is a chance that Peter is making more of a an observation about um, the Spirit being present. In the days of Noah, yeah, when people yeah. rebelled, and the same spirit rests upon Jesus as he's preaching to the spirits in prison. Um, I think some uh, interpret 
interpretations would say that this happened in the interlude between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But then people say, well, in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells the brigands, like, today you'll be with me in paradise. And so when does it happen? Um, And those are all great questions. Um, I guess I would just say, I think what Peter is highlighting more, Peter's just saying God's always been speaking. Yep. Um, Same God. And that God was present speaking through the proclamation of Noah, um, through Jesus's ministry, even when he's preaching spirits in prison and our preaching ministry today, like we're in the same story. So I think I would just kind of go back and say, okay, try to map out in that tight passage who's all there and what was, what's the, the greatest uh, plausibility. We can use the, the philosophical exercise of Occam's razor. Uh, the most straightforward rationale is probably the best one. Yeah. Um, we, we shouldn't try to do too many uh, t- twists and turns to try to th- find something new there. So, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, Cause first Peter does make multiple references to Noah pre- preceding this passage. Um, it says, Second uh, Peter two five. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, mm-hmm. um, he calls him a herald of righteousness, and that he preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. So that that would make more sense because he's, he's already referenced this multiple times that this would be not necessarily because I think some of the other interpretations are like this was like in the window of the death and the ascension of Christ when he was doing this and like which is strange that jesus is yeah. doing something between or after his death um mm-hmm. but i don't I, yeah i think you're right i think the, the better interpretation is that this is if this is something that's happening during the noah's generation and speaks to that that the the spirit has been speaking from the beginning yeah i mean it's uh, this kind of plays itself out in like easter plays you know, like if yep. you've seen one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, people's best efforts to try to map out all of the timeline, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is what we know. Like, for whatever reason, um, if we want to go from Genesis to the maps, like mapping out what happens on the other side of, of death isn't quite clear yeah. in the Old Testament scripture. Like, it's it's fuzzy. I mean, I think it develops over time particularly, and this is up for debate, but particularly as the Jews interact with other communities with their ideas, you know, back and forth from Babylonian exile, you know, angels and spirits are kind of mentioned more. And so I think the question that I would have is like, what would a first century Galilean, you know, person, rather uneducated person like Peter have, what did he glean through his life with Jesus? What does he glean as a worshiper of God and a disciple of Jesus? They derive it. So there is this, um, there is this thought out there in New Testament studies that some of the New Testament books are shaped by Enochian uh, mm-hmm. literature and uh, worldview. So if uh, the listeners of better questions would like to do a deeper dive, um, look up that a little bit and see if that yeah. doesn't shed light on some of it. And who knows, like maybe an, an Enochian literature uh guru would want to be a guest on better questions and knock some yeah. of that out <laughs> i was i had to dabble in a little bit of that because the nephilim question okay. i guess the nephilim are are uh quite the characters in the book of enoch so yeah um it's interesting yeah let's 
Good stuff, man. Yeah, I, I think of um, a lot of interesting, you know, I, I think there's a lot of interests, obviously, for all of humanity, for all of time and what happens next and yeah. the next life. And when even when you go through a season um, where death is kind of on the forefront of our psyche with the, going through a global pandemic, going through. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there's been wars going on, but I feel like the war in Ukraine has been very much in our face more than, um, other wars. And it, it just seems like, man, death is a heavy subject. And I think it makes people think, and there's a, a comedian, um, by the name of Pete Holmes. And he, uh, he has this bit on where he asked the audience, how many of you believe in, uh, the afterlife and some people clap how many of you people believe that after that death is just nothing we just cease and like probably the majority of the crowd is a secular crowd they clap and then he he's like at some point he goes how many of you believe in hell there's no hell and he goes there's no hell and he just pauses and it gets super quiet and he just starts freaking out like there might be a hell and it's it's funny it's comedic it's like they're they're embracing the idea that like we don't believe in it, but what if? And right. it's this, it's almost just the, the fact that this this idea is on the psyche of every, it's like eternity is written on our hearts. There's this almost like this, like, you know, wonder and fear or or just the fear of what happens after nothing. Yeah. Um, that I think um draws us to ask the right right questions and good questions and better questions about. Um, life on earth and how we are yeah. to live and mm -hmm. why I think Jesus speaks about it often mm -hmm. um, and what that would mean for first century Jew and what it means for us today. I think um, mm -hmm. there's a reason why I keep getting these questions and yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah. Something that I always remember reading from reading Keller's reason for God is he has that quote from Miroslav Volf in there about mm -hmm. justice and because yep. hell like hell is attached to this idea of justice like do the wicked go unpunished yep um and he says that's awful um easy to believe that like you know that there is no hell ultimate punishment for like the quiet of the suburban life yeah but me like grew up in croatia where dictators are doing ghastly things he's like it's actually a helpful doctrine to have mm. for you personally because it it refrain it, it gives you a way not to take matters into your own hands when yeah. someone has done so such harm to you right mm. um yeah. it seems to be and that seems to be on top of mind for the apostle paul when he tells uh the church in rome like don't seek revenge but yeah. allow allow god to sort it all out um which is a hard way to live because i mean out of the kit we want to get justice and have it now. Um, right. But once again, Nietzsche says, if you chase monsters, you turn into them. Dude, and, I was um, just, I was just typing that because I wanted the quote. I Beware. may have it wrong. I no, know. that's it. Oh, dude, this is, this is good. This is, <laughs> I, I shouldn't be hyping up Nietzsche this much, but you know, this quote is pretty, pretty great. He says, Beware. <laughs> yeah. Beware that when fighting monsters, you yourself do not become a monster. For when you gaze long to the abyss, the abyss gazes also into you. Dude.
That's a good so one would, to end on right there. Yeah. That's why we keep short accounts. Yeah. That's why we operate in forgiveness. Yep. It's because without it, yeah. there is no moral medicine. Yeah. Well, thanks, Joe. That was a great, great way to end this conversation. Super fun, super helpful. I, I learned a ton and um, love to continue to have you back. And I want to quickly uh, give a plug for your podcast, When I Rise. Yeah. Uh, Joe does a, a daily prayer podcast, and it is awesome. Uh, I encourage everybody to check it out. When I Rise, you can get it on all Spotify, Apple, anywhere. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Well, thanks for plugging that. But I need, I, I'm not just because I'm on here, but man, I'm hyping better questions, particularly the episode about gospel. Oh, uh, yeah. I was, I was listening to that early morning going like fist pumping as I'm walking on the mean streets of East Wichita. Like, I was like, yeah. this is, uh, it was so crisp, so clean, man. It was good. We had, uh, I spent the last year preaching through Philippians. So, you know, did, did the work. Um, yeah. and had fun with that one. Thanks again, everyone, for checking out this podcast. Again, check out Joe's podcast, When I Rise. And uh, we'll be back. I've got episodes um, coming down the pipeline with some fun guests. So check us out. If you want to send in questions, it's eastminster.org slash betterquestions. Go to that URL or the email betterquestions at eastminster.org. Very confusing because it's just reversed, but that's what it is. Send in your questions. And uh, we'll see you next time. Grace and peace.